will be projecting those same scriptures on the screen behind us. Uh, if you wake up all of a sudden, where are we at? That will be where we're at. Um, but also, if you have a Bible and like following along, most of what we're going to do is go through Romans, and we'll start at the beginning and go forward. So it'll be easy if you want to have an open Bible and follow through. Um, dear God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you because you left instructions and teaching and understanding of your plan for our lives. We thank you for this epistle of Romans. And we pray as we go through, dear Lord, that you would enable our minds to understand the concepts that are communicated, the logic that's communicated, the purpose that's communicated. And once our minds have understood that, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts with those truths to change us, to be pleasing, more pleasing to you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, we find a blessed and amazing account of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And I'll be reading verses just verses 8 through 10. And he entered the synagogue and for about three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The very effective ministry here, when we read that last line, just to imagine that. Continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. We see, first of all, the description of his ministry in those three months in the synagogue described as reasoning and persuading. So we kind of get a feel of the way Paul ministered and spoke God's word and spoke the gospel there about the kingdom of God. Within there, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, which is probably expected, but then they began speaking evil of the way before the congregation. From the little bit snippets we get of synagogue life in the New Testament, we kind of get the idea there's not one single person in charge, and there was quite a bit of liberty for anybody to get up and say something. But at this point, Paul, uh, obviously guided by the Holy Spirit, and, and so he decides it's time to, to leave there. And he goes to something that's called the Hall of Tyrannus, and you read in commentaries, they'll give you some speculation about what that was. But the blessed thing here, three months of ministry, reasoning and persuading, and it says he took the disciples with him. So there was a separation, those that were um, not believing, continuing in unbelief, and those that he that came out and followed him as disciples. But then he started uh, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul didn't have a helicopter or an RV that he could wake up in one of the towns out there and come back the next morning. Uh, he didn't even have a motorcycle. And uh, so he was there every day. He was not moving around. God was bringing people. And also, I think people that heard the message were going out. And the end result is all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Uh, there's 
that in itself is a blessing, but it's also, I would like us to note that now he mentions in Acts both Jews and Greeks. This was a ministry that went beyond the known cultural context of the Jewish people and the synagogues in that even geographically where Ephesus is located, it's on the eastern uh, coast of Turkey. And we see not that he said, oh, I wrote back to Jerusalem. They were very pleased with what I was doing, but rather Asia focusing out into that culture, the Roman, Roman Greek culture, and that they heard the word of the Lord. So he had a ministry across the culture. I think we can learn from this and take from this uh, some important things because we also have to speak to a different culture today. 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, and depending on the person, obviously, but we could go to someone and say, oh, the Bible, and they would have at least some respect for the Bible. They might even say it's the Word of God, even though they weren't following it. They say, oh, yeah, it's the Word of God. Or talk about Jesus. Oh, yeah, we know who Jesus is and follow it. But we've moved away from that now, and more and more we encounter, and I'm not talking about immigrants or that, you know, we've some moved, just the same people, been, the culture has changed. And when we talk about God and we talk about the Bible, then they, they don't know what we're talking about. So I think we need to learn from this ministry. If we had 27 months, two years plus three months, if we had 27 months and say, I would like to invest 27 months in having a really good understanding of the Christian faith, there would not have been a better opportunity than to say, let me go sit those three months in the synagogue and hear the reasoning and persuading, and let me move over for the two years in the hall of Tyrannus and hearing Paul raising, uh, uh, reasoning daily. What a preparation. Or if you said, I want to be prepared for ministry, what an opportunity, 27 months. And I mention that because in most chronologies, we don't know those exactly, but it seems that after this passage, after this event, one or two years later, and again, we don't have exact time, Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans. So I believe that this is our opportunity, our window to say, what was this man ministering? What was he teaching? Paul wrote lots of epistles, or quite a few epistles. <clears throat> a lot of them were, uh, some of them were written to uh, people, personal, directed, you know, directed to a person like Timothy or Titus. Other ones were written to churches in a certain locale, uh, city or region, and he wrote epistles to them. Most of those epistles he wrote to locations or churches that he himself had brought up and taught and he knew what they taught, what they understood, what they didn't understand. <coughs> and also, um, <clears throat> he uh, often knew of problems that they had. And so, if we look, for example, at Galatians, at Corinthians, we will see <clears throat> that he's addressing problems that needed to be addressed there. My own personal acceptance of that is in the epistle of Ephesians. It seems that he didn't really have something to deal with of a problem there. And again, you can read it and check me on that. And so he seems to have gone a little deeper in some of the truths of the Christian faith in his epistle to, to uh, the Ephesians. But in Romans, Paul did, again, at the end of Romans 15, you can find him sending greetings. There were quite a few people there that he knew. Uh, I'm just by looking at the names, some of those people were probably pretty influential in doing ministry in the church there just by their past testimony. But in general, he didn't know what the church in Rome or the believers in Rome knew and what they didn't know. He didn't know what problems they had and what problems they didn't have. So Paul, when he writes out, in, again, in the, in the wisdom that God has given him, he sets out and he determines to give an orderly and as complete as possible 
explanation of what the Christian faith is. And that's what we have in the book of Romans. Um, and we're going to do an overview today. There's all cross paths with 80 possible sermons. We won't go there or we would never finish. But just an overview. And we go first to Romans chapter 1. The first four verses is the introduction. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul starts off here. He's, he's a bondservant and he's called, but he's not just kind of a servant. Okay, what do I do now? His, he had a purpose. And his purpose was to set apart for the gospel of God. And, and he says the gospel of God is concerning his son, concerning Jesus Christ. And um, the verse 4 I, I would like to focus on a little bit. Because in verse 4 he says, Who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Paul, when he's talking about Christ, Jesus Christ and about his resurrection, he's not saying, well, now you may find this hard to believe. But on the contrary, this is his proof. Okay, he was declared the son of God because he was resurrected from the dead. And we can go back to, and this is, we're going to jump out of Romans for a moment, back to Acts. We're going to go to Acts 17 and, and see um, that this was the argument. Apparently, I get the idea from this, and also I mentioned that Peter does, that the, the word of the resurrection of Jesus Christ had spread, and it was heard of, and it was at least spoken of. And uh, if we go back to Acts 17, uh, we're going to read verses 29 to 31. The settings of this is Paul in the marketplace in Athens. And again, we're not going through everything he said there, right? And, but it's a discussion. It's certainly cross-cultural. He's in the, in the heart of the Greek culture and, and to talking to them about God. And if we start reading in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So again, in the center of the Greek-Roman culture, there in Athens, and he says the proof that God is set, going to judge you and has that set aside, he has a man for it, is that he resurrected him from the dead. So this is the proof, this is the apologetic, obviously part of it, but a strong part of it. Going back now to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, we can jump to maybe what his summary or his, his um, Subject text sets the theme for the book, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, not because it's a superior moral code. He doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's real easy. Or he's not, he doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because you'll really like it. He says, it's, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. Not you struggling to fulfill a code. The power of God 
for salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is salvation. It's not just a moral code. It's salvation to everyone who believes. And again, we see his mindset for the culture that God had called him to, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Moving to the next verse right there in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And the word translated righteous here can be and actually is translated justice in other translations of the New Testament. So the righteousness or justice of God is revealed from faith to faith. Paul starts here. Think for a moment. Where do we start today when we talk to someone about God? We don't usually start there, right? We usually say, oh, God is love. Paul didn't do that. Paul said God is righteous. And we see the righteousness of God. Okay? I believe in the Western world, uh, United States especially, uh, but the Western world in, in, in a lot, we have been, we're free from injustice compared to most of the world and most of history. Their injustice has been the rule of the day. Having lived in Mexico 40 years, you know, people live and, and get up in the morning and go to bed at night and they deal with not just one but multiple un, uh, sense of injustice. So I think most people would say, what about, you know, the justice of God? Where is that at? Moving on to Romans 1.18, he continues to surprise us in the next verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So again, he doesn't say God loves you first, right? But rather God has wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness. So instead of saying God is love, God loves you, he says God is just, God is righteous, and he has anger towards unrighteousness and ungodliness. Um. This is important for us to remember as we go seek to share the gospel or even live the gospel in the presence of other people. We have the gospel, and we understand God through the gospel. If we go and begin to speak the gospel to someone who doesn't have the gospel, what they see when they look out is not the God of, of redemption. They see a God of wrath. So that's important for us to understand who, who our audience, right? If we talk to them about God and say, well, you know, if there's a God, why this, why that? They see a lot of the things that have been brought out because of the wrath of God. So without the gospel, God, uh, men see God's wrath but not his justice. But then the question comes here, why does God have wrath? And my wife told me, don't use anger. It's wrath. It's stronger than anger. And I'll leave her out of it the rest of the time. She can rest in peace. But uh, the strong anger, filled, you know, really important, strong-held wrath. Why does God have wrath? And Paul sets out, and he's going to give three <coughs> accusations why God is mad, why God has wrath towards men. And the first of those we see in Romans chapter 1 uh, in the following verses, in verses 19 through 21. <clears throat> because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
So we see here that God is revealed in the things created. He's revealed through what he created. And there's a correct response to that, which would be to uh, honor him and to give him thanks. The correct thing would be seeing creation and say, wow, how did all this work together? You know? And I know there's scientists today that feel like they got it all together. They probably understand like half of 1% of what everything that, that's needed to make everything click like it does, right? So instead of saying, wow, what an amazing creation, right? Uh, instead of honoring him, and, and the next thing they should do is give thanks. And instead of giving thanks, they just ignore that, right? So God's wrath, and it says so they are without excuse. It's helped me to uh, understand this and possibly explain it that I use the illustration of a defense attorney to understand the, the accusations, these three accusations that God brings. And it's as if say, hey, you know, the authority in power has great wrath against me. Can you go figure out why he has this wrath against me? And so he comes back and said, well, look, you know, you, you, you should see him in the things he's created. You should have honored him. You should have thanked him. You haven't done that. And you know, you're without excuse. So like the defense attorney saying, I can't defend you against that. They got the goods on you, right? You're without excuse. There's nothing we can do there. Um, <clears throat> so they didn't have the correct response to that. Moving on to Romans 2, uh, verse 1, we go to the other <clears throat> reason, the other basis for uh, God being having wrath for man. And it says, <clears throat> Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So Paul here is saying, you have a sense of right and wrong. We can understand that God revealed himself in a conscience that he's given each of us. And if we read the context here, we'll see Paul has no, uh, no he doesn't pretend that that conscience is perfect or whatever. But he says, even with that shady, you know, limited, fallen consciousness that you have, you say, that guy shouldn't do that, and this person shouldn't think that, and that one shouldn't have that attitude. And if you're honest with yourself, which reality has a way of coming back at you, right? And says, now you're doing the same thing you said that guy shouldn't do. Now you're saying the same thing that you said that person shouldn't say. So again, Paul here, and the defense attorney comes back and he says, look, they're accusing you of that and you have no excuse. We know you're guilty. You and I both know you're guilty, so we have no, uh, no uh, excuse for that. So the third thing that Paul does, and we'll go to Romans 3, and again, it's an overview. We're jumping, so I'll give you a little explanation. Paul began in chapter 2 to talk to the Jewish people. And he said, and, and Paul has a way, I don't know if you've noticed or not, of kind of building people up and telling them how good they are, and then whammo, you know, he hits them, right, with the things that he has to tell them, you know. So he says, oh, you guys are Jews, and you have the law, and you find in the law that you can really serve God and everything, but do you follow the law? Do you do what it says? So he's done all this accusation. And then as if he doesn't really answer, he doesn't say you don't follow it, but he says, do you follow it? Let's them look at it. But then he goes through Scripture, and he has a really long list of text in the Jewish Scriptures where he says that the scriptures themselves say, you're not following it. No one's following it. They all turned away, right? And so that's where we jump in here at verse, 20, at verse 19 in chapter 3 of Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So God, we talked about him being revealed in the created things and nature being revealed in our conscience and to the Jewish people in particular, he says he's been revealed in scripture 
and you have not responded correctly. You have not followed it. So here he doesn't say you're without excuse, but I believe all the Jewish religious people would really like to discuss this and argue this. And he says, so that every mouth may be closed. You have nothing to say about it. There's no defense for what you've done. No. <clears throat> which brings us to the conclusion or the summary or conclusion that he makes, which we all know in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, one of the things <clears throat> that I would say is that the modern day Christians are lazy and I count myself among them often. And we like jumping to Romans 3.23 and kind of like whamming that at him or throwing that at him. Hey, you know, all have sinned, right? They have no idea what we're talking about. Because we don't take the time, as Paul did, to say, look, this is where we can see you're not treating God correctly. And this is where we can see you're not treating God correctly. So he has given us an explanation. The explanation he gave, maybe uh, with the exception of the first two arguments, he gives the explanation in secular language. He doesn't use religious terms. But now, in summary, he says, okay, this is sin. You've understood it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then... When the guy that hired the defense attorney is starting to look kind of bleak, the defense attorney smiles. Of course, the defense attorney is Paul. And he says, but they're offering a plea bargain. Pretty good plea bargain. Let me explain it to you. And again, that's an illustration I use. You can throw it away. It's not, it's not anything very deep. But so Romans 3, 21 through 26, he begins to tell what God, again, has done to solve the problem of wrath. God to give us righteousness, but let's read it. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been, has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short, of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul comes along and says, this is the problem. All have sinned. All are without excuse. All have their mouth shut. There's nothing they can say about it, but here's this provision. And it's a righteousness of God. And it's taken through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. Um, so we have you know, the promise to all and then the funnel down to who believe. It's not just all and all and all, but all who believe um, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And then he goes here and he does, teach, he does give us some terms. And if you want to call them religious terms, probably properly so. So he talks about faith. He talks about grace. He talks about redemption. He talks about propitiation. Faith, I think, as we read through not only uh, the, the epistle of Romans, but even in the Gospels, Jesus talking about faith. We can understand faith, but again, keep understanding more and more all the time. Grace in, 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 in Romans, starting in Romans 4, 5, 
he's going to talk and clarify even the end of three. And he's going to really give a definition and clarify and define with examples and everything what grace is so we don't have a doubt about what grace is. Redemption, my own personal preference is I love going to the book of Ruth and saying, the book of Ruth, here is a kinsman redeemer. What does it mean? And that's what Christ has done for us as, as a redeemer. For propitiation, I love going to Leviticus 16 and just seeing how in the world can you approach God who's holy uh, if your tabernacle has been unholy because sinners go there. The, your priests are sinners. How in the world can they? So I think it underlies why there needs to be a, re, a propitiation and a covering for us before God. And so the end result in verse 26 is God is going to be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the real challenge. If, we, any, if you want to go switch religions or whatever, you have a God. Is he a just God? Yeah. How does he deal with unjust people, right? That's a, that's a dilemma. How can he be just in what's here? But he, Christ, by this redemption, by propitiation, by the righteousness that he gives in our place, he continues to be just. Without stopping being his justice, his righteousness, he justifies those who need to be justified because they, again, are without excuse where they're at. So moving forward, he reaches a milestone in, in Romans chapter 5, verse, verses 1 and 2. And kind of reaches a point there. And if you notice here, he's talking, Paul is deep in the sense that he gives the historical. He's always dealing with the historical, what God is doing in the whole world. But then in parallel, he's saying, this is what he's doing with you, right? And how those two things fit together. So in Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> the first two verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the, in the hope of the glory of God. This is a milestone verse because we've gone from being under the wrath of God to have peace with God. This is, um, it, 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 and it's into grace by faith is where we're there. But it's important to note that this is past tense. This is a done deal, having been justified. And one of the basic things of interpreting Scripture we should understand is if, if someone writing, and not only Paul, but you know they're all inspired by the Lord, if they say, settle a question in chapter 2, don't expect them to be changing it in chapter 3, right? And so here it's settled, having been justified by faith. So we had a guilt of sin. The first aspect of sin that the book of Romans talks about, the guilt of sin, and through justification, it's a settled, past tense, done deal. That also means that, uh, that this is where we live. If we are a believer, then we can pick up in Romans and say, okay, what's the rest of the book about? I'm at this point. What is the rest of the book about? And moving on then to Romans 5, 7, and 8, just to kind of tie this back to what we talked about at the beginning. In Romans 5, 7, and 8, For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Once we understand God's justice, his just wrath, and the grace he offers, then we can understand his love. So Paul started with justice, works through that, and he comes here and says, okay, 
Now we can see that God loved us because he, uh, we were sinners and Christ died for us. It's not a love, an empty concept of love. It's love with a definition. It's love with a context. And justice first and not only love as many people would have it today. Paul moves from here on to a historical perspective in chapter 5 of how throughout history uh, the law and effect it had. And he'll summarize that in 520. And he says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 520, in case I didn't state that correctly. Um, but then, so, so historically says, man, you know, God, if we read, honestly read the Old Testament, we see God dealing with God, Israel and Israel always disobeying and always disobeying. And God starts really telling them, look, it's the end of that pact because you didn't keep it. It's over. It's finished. It's not there anymore. And uh, so, but he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So then he moves from there back to us as a, in a personal level. And he has what I've after thinking about it a lot, call now a grace-obliged question. A grace-obliged, because we have grace that abounds beyond sin. A grace-obliged question we're obligated to ask, uh, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? All right? Again, if we want to do a parallel, your dad's got billions of dollars. Do you want to just throw away money? Maybe that's a bad illustration. But the grace, there's no limit to you. Are you just going to throw away, throw away that? So he asked that question. So this is a question for us today. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And there's people that say, oh, I'm a believer. I was saved. And yeah, I sinned, but God's grace will cover them all. Paul's saying, wait a minute. Do we want to really do that? Do we want to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he goes ahead in Romans uh, verse 2, 6, 2, and gives an answer to this. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Very special section here. When he says, uh, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Most people, if we're honest, can start scratching our head. What exactly is he talking about? But then he kind of pop quizzes us and he says, oh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized in his death? Whoa, was I supposed to know that, right? Was I supposed to understand that? But the beautiful thing, of course, is he goes on and he explains that moving forward, no? That we have, uh, we have uh, died to sin and we've been baptized into Jesus Christ, into his death. And so again, don't be surprised if you didn't know that. Paul, for that reason, goes on and gives an answer. But he explains what God does and has done. He, he tells us, well, he said, explains what God has done and uh, God does and has done in regards to sin. Now he's moved from, we had the guilt of sin in Romans 5.1. We now have peace with God. But now he's talking about, we're going to see here, and we'll understand a little more when we jump over uh, to forward to a verse in, in Romans chapter 7. But here he's talking about continuing in sin. What about that continuing power of sin? What about the sinful nature that I still find in my life? What do I do with that? <clears throat> And so he, he explains what God has done, does about that and what he has done. He also gives us some directive. It's not just a pop quiz and, oh, if I know the answer to the quiz, we're solved here. But he goes on and he gives us some directives of things that we should understand, some attitudes we should have, some actions we should do, and some actions we should not do. 
So really good material there in Romans 6. I highly recommend And part of the idea of giving an overview is say, hey, let's go and study this book. You know, you take time. I had one young man today say, I'm going to study Romans this week. I said, praise God. That was part of the purpose. We move forward to Romans 7, <clears throat> verses 19 through 20. We can get, really get to the depth of Paul's analysis of the continuing sin nature in, in his own life and in each one of our lives. Verse 19, Romans 7, 19. But for the good that I want, <clears throat> I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. The sinful nature. It says, I want to do this, but there's something in me that doesn't do that. And Paul jumps to um, the... A praise about this, actually, before he gives the, the solution, he begins in Romans 8, 1 and 2, he begins and he says to praise God and thank God. Therefore, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And law here is lowercase law. He's talking about the principle and not, not every time he says law is the law of Moses. Here it's the principle of sin and death. And moving forward again, you know, he praises God for that. And so we have a, a solution from God in that. But we see the, the power of that and the special of that. And if we go to Romans 8, 11, very beautiful verse. And he says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Remember, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. Salvation to Paul is more than just that justification. It's also how we're going to deal with this tendency to sin. And if the spirit, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, if he lives in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies through this, his spirit who dwells in you. So it's not just us with a code of conduct and how do I do and how do I do. The Holy Spirit, we should have and know in our lives that the Holy Spirit is working to give us life uh, in, in, our, in our mortal bodies, still subject to that sin every once in a while, the, the sinful nature. But here we see the power of God. We see the power of God for salvation. The tense, the verb tense here is important. This is a present working he doesn't say, oh, God did that and took care of your sinful nature. But he says he will. He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life, a present ongoing work of God in our lives. Moving on to Romans 8, 20 and 21, and he actually ties together here. Paul sees that there's this guilt of sin, there's the power of sin, the sinful nature, and there's the consequences of sin. And again, 70 sermons, we could start going different directions with this. But in the consequences in Romans 8, 20, 21, consequences of sin, he says, for the creation was subjected to futility, <clears throat> not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Go back to... Genesis 3, you know, you send and, you know, it's going to produce thorns and thistles. We're going to take away the tree of life and so many things. And, of course, Genesis 4 continues and there forward 
all the consequences of sin. But he's saying uh, the creation itself is looking to be liberated from that slavery to corruption. The players that God, the element that God has used in this is the uh, glory of the children of God. When God is redeeming us, he is redeeming the world, which if you go back and remember, he said, the world is yours, control it, empower it, right? So in redemption of the children of God, there is this uh, freedom for nature. But most important, moving on to verse 20, uh, jumping over a verse and moving to Romans 8, 23. He says, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And our first response or thing we think about is our physical body. And we say, oh, yeah, no more gray hair, no more knees wearing out, and, you know, problems with my heart, my lungs, and, you know, slow, a slow dying process. You know, it's going to redeem my body. We think about that. But let me say, if you go in and read the context, remember Paul said at one point, and we skipped that verse, but at one point he says, who's going to free me from this body of sin? He kind of screams out, and he understands. So it ties in together the consequences of sin. Part of the consequences of sin is that tendency to sin, plus all these other consequences. And there will come a time, and that's so the sanctification should be real and substantial and ongoing in our lives now. But the final thing, like how's God going to have us all in heaven if we're imperfect and have heaven, right? So he does this, the redemption of our bodies takes away that sinful nature and we will be doing what we want to do. And we are waiting for that eagerly. But this is a future, okay? For in hope, it's something in the future. Moving on to Romans 8, uh, verses 26 through 27, he begins talking about what all this means to us. He, he takes, and, and what does this imply, and what all is going on here? So in Romans uh, 8, 26 and 27, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul here says, we don't know what to pray. Actually, the whole book of Romans is, he kept praying to God that he could go to Rome, could go to Rome, could go to Rome. And finally he said, I'm going to write the letter because every time I've tried to go, it hasn't worked out. You know? And, and that's, another, that's another one of those 75 sermons off the side. right? But anyway, he, he says, we don't know what to pray for. For me, myself, I don't know what to pray for. For those I love, for those around me, may I say they need the Lord or they're following the Lord, but they need this. We don't know what to pray. The best example of that that I have in my own personal life is I laugh now and are cautious. We hear someone is sick. And so we pray, oh, God, uh, make their kidneys work or have their bud cleaned out or, you know, help their heart, fix the valve in their heart or whatever. And later I said, well, that's kind of dumb because it's like the creator of the universe he knows where he put every atom to make every molecule to make every uh, pro 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 uh, protein to make the whole body and have, make it all work. And I'm telling him, hey, touch this or touch that. Ridiculous, right? But that's what it's saying here. We don't know what, God, we don't know what God's plan for our life is. So how can we say, God, I want this and I want that? God knows the whole plan. And the Holy Spirit knows that. He knows what God wants for us, and he intercedes. The power of God for salvation all right, it's not just us struggling along, 
okay? It's, he intercedes for us so that God can do what he wants to do in our will, in our lives. And moving on to the next verse, actually, of Romans 8, we come to one of the texts in the New Testament that, that tries out for the title of most liked and known text in the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. And it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And there's a whole bunch of people about, out there that see that verse and they slam their Bible set shut and say, that's good enough for me. I want to go out and everything's going to work out for good. I don't need to know anything else. Just that, no? And it's really out of context and careless because it says to those that are called according to his purpose. We might want to ask, what is his purpose? And hear that part of it. And actually in verse 29, we have his purpose. And that's really one of the things I want you to consider today as we look at Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Is that what you signed up for? Think about it. Have you said, God, get my life, because I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's God's plan. So there's, some, I think, some prayer to be done there in thinking about that. Are, are, are you signed up? Are you, are you with the program here? And then Paul here takes three chapters, chapters 9, 10, 11 of Romans, and he talks about, well, what's going on with Israel? What's going on? Again, he's working through the history of what God's doing in history, and then how does that tie together with us? So he's going to talk about Israel. Uh, and why does he do that? Well, first of all, he is Jew, and he, when he addressed it to Rome, he said to the Jews and the Greeks. I mean, they're, they're both audiences there. And so he has gone through his epistle, and he said, um, you know, the, apart from the law, you could be justified. And when we read through the part in the, in the sanctification, he'll say, no, we're not without the law. How, we can be, are we going to keep on sinning because we don't have the law? No, we're justified without the law. So then you say, well, okay, well, what was the point of this? And, of course, he starts both, chapters, both chapter 9 and chapter 10 with a very deep and heartfelt, deep concern. He says, I'm a Jewish man. It's my people. It hurts me. I would wish. I would want that. But then he takes that time to talk to them about what's going on. In Romans uh, chapter 9, where he goes in this, he goes through and he shows, well, God's been selective. No? And he selected uh, Jacob instead of Esau, and he selected Ishmael, I mean Isaac instead of Ishmael, and so forth. Selective. And then he, he sums that up in Romans 9, 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So God decides who he's going to have mercy for and who he's going to have compassion for. Um, this is in the book of Exodus. And I had opportunity to review it a few weeks ago for the fourth and fifth grader class. Sometimes I find some humor in the Bible. Forgive me. I hope it's not irreverent. But in the context, Israel has messed up everything, right? And God's at the point where he says, well, let's wipe them out, Moses, and I'll make the whole people out of you, right? We'll start all over again. You'll be the new Abraham. We'll just go again. And Moses is a great intercessor and really loves his people. He says, no, God, you need to forgive these people. And God kind of steps in and says, wait a minute, Moses. I'll decide who I'm going to have mercy on. That, that seemed a little proper, and, but at the same time funny to me looking back on it. No, 
I will decide. You let, don't get into my business here. I'll decide whom I have mercy, on whom I have uh, mercy. Uh, on, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So <clears throat> he breaches a summary in, in Romans 9. And again, this is an overview. We're certainly not going to resolve all of this here this morning. But he reaches a summary in Romans 9.16, which certainly we have to understand and consider. <coughs> and he says, so then it depends, not on human will or ex exertion, but on God who has mercy. It, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So we say, you know, this is God that decides that. I like the fact that it's not God who decides, but God who has mercy, because we do we are talking about the God of mercy here. Um, but then switching over to chapter 10, it's almost like we say, what? Wait a minute, you changed your tune. There's, there's a, a different thing in, Ro in Romans 10. Let's read it, Romans 10, verses 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, <coughs> in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. What's going on here? A very simplistic way, which sometimes is good to be simplistic. Romans 9 is looking at it from God's perspective. Romans 10 is looking at it from our perspective. If you believe in your heart, okay, confess with your mouth. So God has promised that mercy in that way. Uh, the amazing thing here that's worth commenting uh, is that this, Paul takes this from Deuteronomy. And Moses, I think it's chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, at the end he's going through. And he's saying, God gave you all these promises and this pact. And if you follow and all, you know, he's explained it all to you. So if you believe in your heart and if you confess with your mouth, you can follow this pact. Right? And of course, Paul has already said they really didn't do that. So he comes back and says, no, what it's talking about is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then it moves on to hear something uh, important for us. And where does this touch our lives? And so Romans 10, verses 14 through 15, Paul, again, with his reasoning, right, and thinking about this, he has some questions. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, the good news of good, of good things. If we go back in the early part of verse that we didn't say, in the early part of Romans, as Paul said, I'm obligated to all men, Jews and Greeks, or Gentiles and Jews, right? And why is he obligated? Because if they have the gospel, they can believe and they can get the mercy of God. If they don't have the gospel, they can't. And that's why we're concerned about sharing the gospel as an expression, an extension. God loved me and I love others saying, let me tell you how this can, how you can have the mercy of God. But also we say God chose. How do we know God chose me? How would we know that? And I would suggest that we can look back. How did we come to know the gospel? And if there's 50 people here, there may be 50 explanations of how that is. Some of you might say, I was raised in a Christian home. My parents told me, praise God for your parents and that you heard it there. There's others that might say, I was raised in a Christian home, but they really had no idea what was going on. Neither did I until I got to be 25. And then, wow, what's going on here? And other people, I mean, I've heard every explanation under the sun for that, but we can see God 
personally for me, had me get the gospel in this way, and I was able to believe. So we see God for that in working in our lives. Now, at this point, I might say there might be somebody here that would say, well, that doesn't apply to me because I have not believed. Well, let me say this. God has given you, even in this message, but it's probably not the first time, what you need to know. And it's in your mouth and in your heart. And he's given you to come into his mercy. All you have to do is say, okay, I think. As I look through this, it makes sense. I want to believe and uh, confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. So really, there's, you're on one side or the other, but God is working. And, and of everyone in this room, we, we want to get it out further also. But Romans 10, 17, he kind of has a conclusion, a very logical conclusion, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So as we go through Romans, but again, all of the New Testament, we find snippets of what faith is. Here's a snippet, right? Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Moving on to uh, Romans chapter 11. He uh, reaches really the, the, the last chapter here talking about Israel. And uh, this is what he has to say, Romans eleven twenty five through 26. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, <coughs> just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So Paul once answers the question about Israel. You know, is God faithful to Israel? Does he have a plan with Israel? And he says, God's plan with Israel is he's hardened their hearts. And he gives verses in the Bible that talk about that. Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then there'll be a point where he says, okay, now we'll let the, the, the uh, acceptance and faith and ministry of the Gentiles or a knowledge of that widen it into all of Israel to be saved. So that's God's future plan. And he gives us some concrete exhortations about that of what we should do. But moving forward... And from here forward, in Romans 12 forward, uh, we'll see that Paul has covered, uh, he covered again, sin, the guilt of sin, and justification. The ongoing tendency to sin and sanctification. And then the consequences of sin and glorification of future event. And so really Romans 12, 13, from here towards the end of 15, he starts giving all his greetings and so forth. But in the teaching part of this, we could really say it's a workbook or a case studies of, okay, how does this look if I have someone that no matter what I do, they're going to hate me, you know? How do I deal with them? How do I deal with the government? How do I deal with someone who has, a, you know, really nitpicking on issues of the faith? And many, many other things which we can't cover today. But he gives us a, an introduction to that. And I want, to, I want to say another challenge for us this morning to take home with us and to meditate in our lives. Not just today, but this week, and not just this week, but on in our lives. And Paul says in Romans 12, 1, again, a verse that maybe a lot of you know, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Okay? I urge you by the mercies of God. He's explained all that God has done, right? All this explanation of how God has worked with mercy for us to provide justification and the power of God for salvation. So he says, if you have understood all that and seen all that, I urge you based on that 
to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. We had that other verse that said to be conformed to the image of his son. We're kind of coming back at it from a different angle, right? To, uh, to offer your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Other translations take those Greek words and say they're reasonable worship. If God's done all that for us, how could we say, oh, let's not do anything about it. We don't need that kind of response. So our spiritual, reasonable, true, and proper worship in response to the mercies of God is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So again, the question, are you with the program? Are you with what God is saying here? James talks about looking at the word and what does it reflect back to us, no? So I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And he gives a lot of concrete directives on how that should be done. And, and, but I want to touch on one in Romans 12, 4 through 5. He says, uh, for Romans 12, 4 and 5, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Uh, so what he's saying is if you're going to present your body a living sacrifice, the place to do it is in the body of Christ. It's not the, a, a human organization, but just you're a member, I'm a member of him, he's a member of me, and we're members one of the other. And this is where we should be presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And then uh, an exhortation in Romans 13. Again, there's a lot, of, a lot of workbook here, a lot of case studies, and this is a summary. But going to Romans 13, we'll look at one of his exhortations in Romans 13, 11 through 14. Paul getting, working through all this. And he exhorts us in, in verse 11 saying, Do this, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. So if you want to see what Christianity looks like and should look like, according to Paul, we got to hear it in the book of Romans. What do we do with that? Finally, in closing, in Romans 16, we'll look at his closing. Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. If we go back to verse 25, he says, A praise to God, the one who is able to establish you. So he ends also in the power of God for salvation. The one that's able to establish you. And he's made this known to all nations and it should lead to an obedience of the faith. And to the only wise God, through Christ Jesus, be glory forever. Amen. And dear God, we thank you this morning for, we missed out on those blessed 27 months, but we thank you for this book 
Uh, we've just done an overview today, but we thank you that we can go into it and learn about what you've done for us and what you want us to, how you want us to respond and how we reap all the benefits of the salvation that is under your power. We pray that you'll continue that during the week, that you'll work in our hearts with it. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.